0: and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message.
1: So my talk is, of course, on the Torah portion, Noah. Noah. And I titled it, Be righteous. I I am using a number of scriptures today. They should go up on the screen, but if you want to look at your favorite translation, uh, I'll I'll call them out so that if you want to turn, you're welcome to do so. I'm gonna start with Genesis 6, 5 through 8 to kind of set the stage. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that's Kind of where this starts, it was not a great time. The condition of the world and all the people during the time of Noah, what was God's reaction? He was going to destroy them. We, we, we talk, go back to a time, this is when God dealt directly with man. There weren't nations at this point. There was a bunch of people on the face of the earth. All of them had a relation with God. They lived an enormous amount of time. And so it's interesting if you actually look at Noah, um, son of Lamech and and his grandfather was Methuselah. Methuselah was alive from the time of, not Abraham or Seth, but all the others of the fathers until the time and then was alive up until the time of the flood. And then Noah did that bridge. So there's a lot of shared knowledge there. So there were righteous people By by the way, the year that Methuselah died is the year the flood came. So there were righteous people, but the condition of the world had degenerated to the point where God said that they were all evil. They, they're, they're, the intent of their heart was evil continually. But Noah found grace, him, in the eyes of the Lord. Why is that? Why did that happen? Let's look at the next verse, Genesis 6, 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noach was a just man, and the words there is ish Sedek. perfect tamim in his generations. Noach walked with God. So let's look at this verse a little closer, because this seems to have all the meat, right? First, Noach, it's two Hebrew letters. It's a short little name. It just is chet, or nun chet, and the name means rest which I didn't know before, I thought that was interesting. The Hebrew word for man in verse six is ish. And one rabbi that I was reading said, just the name, just calling him an ish was a compliment in its own right. And I did a search for, based on that, I kind of did a search on the different words used for man in the Bible. And I found the first word used for man was Adam, which makes sense. However, the times that Adam was used man was more generic, it was a non-specific. Sometimes it was like even all of mankind. It was used in the sense of some man, a generic man, or like I said, or even all of mankind. When ish was translated as man, there was a uniqueness to the individual, which I thought was interesting. As a matter of fact, the first time ish was used was when the woman, Isha, was created from the rib taken from man, ish, which I thought was really sweet. But noach is not just described as an ish, but as a just man or ish sedek. At this synagogue, we're pretty familiar with the sedek. We use it a lot, right? Um, and it's most often translated as righteous. Strong defines this word as just, lawful, righteous. And then it goes on to outline the biblical use of sedek as five different subcategories. It says just and righteous as in government, when they make good decisions, that's ascetic. It's just right in one's cause. So you could be, you know, for the cause is righteous. Just or righteous in conduct and character, which is probably the sense here, obviously. And righteous as justified and vindicated by God. And then five, it's right, correct, lawful. It's sort of like a little collection of like, look, it's just, this is just right. It's just good. (laughs) So, Noah describes him as a righteous man. And he is. It also uses the word tamim. When it says he's perfect, that's tamim in his generation. Now, Strong's defines tamim as without blemish, complete full, perfect, sincerely, sound, without spot, undefiled, upright, whole. So the, this verse about Noah is the first time Tamim is used. Now the second time Tamim is used, it's in relation to Abraham. In Genesis 17, 1, it says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. Blameless is the Hebrew word tamim. Tamim is used repeatedly throughout Leviticus and Numbers when directing the sacrifices. should be without blemish, tamim. We know that the sacrifices were a type of Messiah. It's used in, ref- in reference to God throughout Psalms and Proverbs, as in, I'll just take one at random here, Psalm 80, 30. As for God, His way is perfect, tamim. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. There's a sense about this word that is pretty special, right? It's actually not often used for men. As I looked at it, I I went through the the different times. It's so handy to have resources (laughs) that allow you to search in Scripture, you know. Um, So tamim is, is not often used for men. Noach was one example. Yaakov is said to be a tam man. And Tom is usually translated perfect as well. Now, it's not in the case of, of Jacob, and sometimes people throw a little shade at Jacob, but he's described as a Tom man. You know who else was described as a Tom man? Job. So I think it's pretty good. That's, it's not a bad thing to be called Tom or Tamim, right? I mean, it's, it's very good, as a matter of fact. Well, the people in Noah's time, though, were wicked. In Genesis 6, 5, Again, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that the, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. This is very short and to the point. I was impressed by the magnitude of these few words, right? I don't know. I don't want to dwell on this too long, but I do find it both alarming as well as concise. It's very short but it also, you know, we, we think about it because, again, we, we like to think of ourselves as so far removed from them because it's been a few thousand years. But, but guess what? Human behavior doesn't change much. It's why the Bible is still relevant to us today. It's why, why things written down about, when, when documents use men's behavior, they're still consistent because we don't change a great deal. Now, yes, we can, we, our technology changes, but we don't. So, it's alarming because if every intent of the thoughts of your heart are only evil continually, your actions are gonna be wicked. I just don't see any way around it. <laughs> you will be wicked. It's also alarming to me because I don't usually think of people. I think, I think of them as sort of the opposite of this. <laughs> this is perhaps my own failure. But most of the time, I think they're not trying to do what's wrong. I just think, okay, we're weak and we sometimes fail, which we will. Um, And maybe I think this way, because God is constantly reaching out to us, right? We see the goodness of God throughout the the world. And so in spite of the enemy, in spite of our own weakness and and wickedness, God is continually blessing us and reaching out to us. And so you do see moments, you see some goodness, um, because God is reaching out to us. However, if I'm gonna be fair, the scripture does point out this reality. If we look at Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Which is an indictment against us in general. (laughs) I also thought they did live a long time. Perhaps this is simply the natural consequence of people who've lived much longer, centuries, who do not choose to follow God. In our short lifespans, I have found and I, I do think this is kind of an interesting thing. As people get older, they become more set in who they are. If they're good people, if they're nice people, if they're friendly people, they are be, become more of that. My mother, I just went and saw her. she's 88 years old. Uh, I saw her last month. She's so sweet. Her memory's going, she laughs all the time with my sister. She's just a very sweet person. That's just the way she is. But I've seen other people who choose wickedness, and they... They go back and forth a little bit, but as they get older, it almost seems like, yeah, I'm tired of of even pretending I like good stuff. I'm choosing wicked and I wanna stay wicked and don't bother me in my wickedness. I can only imagine if people live several hundred years, how much more entrenched they become in in their thoughts. So maybe that's all it was, but we do know that this was conditioned because that's what scripture tells us. So it is concise because we don't need to enumerate all the ways they were doing wrong. Every intent was wicked. Kind of covers it. How was Noah able to remain righteous among so much wickedness? It's a fair question. A passage in the Talmud helps to answer this question, at least in part. In a vote, the fathers four-one. Ben Zoma says, "Who is a wise person? One who learns from everyone." This isn't a new thought. This is a sentiment that's been stated by others in different contexts. But the idea is intriguing, and although counterintuitive in this case, it, it's also obvious. Normally, we learn from good examples, and normally that's the best way to learn, right? Because they're doing the things we want, we learn from those good examples. Noah didn't have many good examples <laughs> left in his life. So, what happened with, with Noah? A perceptive person can recognize positive qualities. In others, even when the person is using them for wickedness, so a righteous person may observe the passion somebody is of someone engaged in doing wrong, and we see this a lot of times in music and in theater and things like that. But then they channel that passion into something good, and it enhances the experience. We we do find there is a lot of overlap in those types of things. So Noah was thought. To epitomize this ability to channel the negative into the positive, indeed, in Genesis 6:8, even Noah's name is thought to hint at this quality, and I thought this was intriguing. If the letters of Noah's name, nun chet, are reversed, chet nun, they form the word chen, grace, which is what is used to describe him in 6:8. But Noah found grace in the size of, eyes of the Lord. So I thought that was interesting and instructive, and it's not a bad thought. Noach is also connected to Psalm 1. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed, or fortunate, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. I've read that verse. As a matter of fact, we read it weekly. I, I never really saw Noah in this. But... When I was preparing this message, one article I read made this observation. It said, the the Midrash Socher Tov, in the name of Rabbi Yehuda, comments that the phrase, fortunate is the man, Ish, refers to Noah because Noah is called Ish in our Parsha. It goes on to say, why is he fortunate? Why is, you know, why is he a fortunate man? According to the Midrash, Noah was fortunate and that he did not follow the ways that the three categories of the people described wicked, sinners, or scoffers that are cited in Psalm 11. These three categories, negative categories, correspond to the three generations that arose over the world in the course of Noah's lifetime, which I thought was also interesting. So, the generation of Enos, Adam's grandson, who initiated the practice of idolatry, so that's the wickedness, it says the generation of the flood, which was immersed in immoral behavior, which we see. And then it also talks about the generation of the dispersion who built the Tower of Babel in order to wage war against God. That also is at the end of this particular Torah portion. So it was Noah's good fortune that he didn't go in the paths of these things, of any of these sins in this generation. So that's why they connect Psalm 1-1 to Noah, which I thought was cool. So now that we know he could be righteous in such a wicked time, How does this apply to us? Well, we can be righteous too. As as soon as I say it, we bristle a little bit. Uh, We're not really righteous. We know ourselves pretty well. We know our right, only God is righteous. And, And that's true. I know this too. But God does ask us to become as he is. If we look in Matthew 5, 48, therefore you shall be perfect, just as your father in heaven is perfect. Now that is a goal. I don't think any of us will achieve it in our lifetime here. But it's a goal. It's what what we've been asked to do. Furthermore, we're not asked asked to do this alone. That's the other thing. We're not doing this in our own power. We know that because we are messianic believers, right? We know that God is working with us and in us. It is God that gives us the ability and the freedom to follow him. In Philippians 2.13, we read, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So there's no mistake, God does work in us. And then we see in Second Corinthians 5:21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Yes, I know that we are covered by Messiah. It is not our righteousness. However, this salvation, this covering of our sins, and I, I, this is just an add-on, I, I, I heard um, uh, Christopher during the, the worship time talk about the covering. The first time I can remember the word kippur, cover, used is when they pitched the ark. They covered the ark. It's the same word, which I thought was very interesting. Anyway, um, so we are covered by God. And this replaces our feeble righteousness with the righteousness of God. Well, even that was prophesied in the Tanakh. Let's go to Jeremiah 23:6. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he shall be called and you guys all know this, Adonai Sechenu, right? The Lord is our righteousness. We have songs where we sing this, and, and we enjoy that. Adonai Sechenu. which, by the way, um, you can see the tzedek again in there. So and before leaving this point, I, I must point out that even though we will all fail, we really don't have any excuse, and we can't rely on that. Say, well, God, you knew, you knew I was weak, you know. Because in 1 Corinthians 10.13, God points out to us just because he knows us and he knows what we'll think and what we'll say. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. So God really has given us the tools in every situation to choose right. We don't. I mean, we, you know, there's nobody in the Bible. There's no, the the, the, the only one that's perfect in the Bible is God. Everybody else fails at some point, no matter how good they are, Noah included. I mean, um, we know a couple of the stories with Noah, but it was unusual. Um, Faith also, we can't ignore the fact that it's not our acts alone that does it, it's our faith. We recognize that God works in us and we recognize that it is our faith in God that's important to God, not simply our righteous acts. Faith motivates our action. If we have faith in God, we will do what he asks. Now, I'm gonna pause here for a second. I work for a large aerospace company um, and they recognize this. They want us to behave in certain ways and they find that just telling us to do something Oddly enough, among a bunch of engineers, they don't just do what they say to do. Not a real surprise, really. But what they did was they, they, they give us a, a training class and they show a pyramid and they show the base of this pyramid is our beliefs and then, above a certain line, that translates into our actions. They realize that what we believe, what we experience, those are the two bases of the thing. What we believe and what we experience, those form, those create our actions. So it's our beliefs. So they, they teach this to us, and they try to, they try to give us new information, and they try to give us new experiences so that they will then naturally act the way we're supposed to. Well, isn't that what the Bible is doing? Isn't that what we're learning as we read about God? you know, we, we learn, and, we, and our experiences reinforce it, and that motivates our action. So, if we do something because we have faith in ourselves, no matter how righteous our acts, it will not please God. And, and there are several scriptures I could use, but I'm not going to dwell on that too long, because I want to talk about doing good, right? We see this idea explicitly in Hebrews chapter 11, that wonderful explanation, the whole chapter is on faith, but in the Hebrews eleven six, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Again, short, concise, pretty clear. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, what's interesting is this chapter, while they're talking about faith, goes through several people. And the very next verse deals with Noah. So let's look at that, Hebrews eleven six. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So it's interesting. The thing I love about chapter 11, and I've always been confused by um, this argument about faith and works and things like that, is that these were known to be righteous men. They talk about Abraham. They talk about Noah. They were known to be righteous men. All the writer of Hebrews is doing is saying, yes, they were righteous, but it was because of their faith that they were righteous. So it's not that actions don't matter. It's not that actions aren't important. It's not that righteousness or obedience is good or bad necessarily, right? It's not, it's, that's not the thing, of course, that saves us. It's the motivation behind it. It's that faith that drives us actions. But I, I will tell you, I have heard from many people, if you try to do what God says to do, they're like, oh, legalist. Let's be clear, that's not legalist, okay? There were many righteous people in scripture. They weren't legalists. Legalist says that they reply upon their own righteousness for their salvation. That's legalism as defined by the Bible, which is the only thing that matters. So let's, let's get over that. Let's, let's get over that idea. Um, now, the first few verses of this chapter give perhaps the best overall summary of faith found anywhere that I found. And that's actually in Hebrews 11:1 one through three. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. That's a little bit intangible. If you will, but it's meant to be intangible because that's what the nature of this is. For it is by, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which were which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God is spirit. Yet everything we see, every experience we have, everything we understand, we, we measure to... A, a, a very, you know, very closely, very, very exact detail. That's the physical world, all created by God, who is spirit. And it, it is interesting. And all of that is contained in that, those, those few verses, which is really kind of intriguing, really neat. Now, we don't know all things. We're never going to know all things. Faith in God is that bridge between what we know about God and the world and what we do not know because of what we've seen, because of what we've been taught, because of what we, you know, we read in the Bible. We know a lot of it. We have personal experience. We can see evidences of it. It builds our confidence in the things that we don't know all the things about. And this has been true for now thousands of years. Think of all the science we've learned since they started looking at the Bible, and it still reinforces those things. It's kind of a wonderful thing. Okay. So it is by grace we are saved. We have faith. We know that that matters. We know that God works in us. But let's look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. We're going to get exact here, right? But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Messiah. By grace you have been saved And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Messiah Yeshua. That in the ages to come, he might show that the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Messiah Yeshua. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, not trying to be heretical, I'm not trying to teach you guys something that isn't right out of scripture, right? Because we still have to act. I've talked about we wanna be righteous. We still choose how we live. We still choose what we do. Now, I know that God works in us, but he gives us that choice and tells us to make choice. So recognizing that God, it's a God that allows us to follow him, and it is by his grace that we are saved, we must be honest, and admit that he wants us to act righteously, act in accordance with his commandments. It is evidence of our salvation, not the reason for our salvation. In Romans 6.16, we read, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey... You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. This is an interesting verse because it doesn't really give you a choice to not be a slave. You're either a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. Um, That's the reality. Now, John makes this point clearly and eliminates any wiggle room. In 1 John 2, 1 through 6, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Messiah Yeshua, the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And he kept the law perfectly. Again, a pretty lofty goal, is it not? So the scriptures on this subject are plain. But I have to be honest with you, in my experience... It is much more common to hear people today, even pastors that I've had, try to explain why we don't need to do something the Bible's telling us instead of just telling us to do what's in the Bible and recognizing that we will sometimes fail. They, they, the argument is sort of this, God loves us, right? So it doesn't matter. Even if we fail, God still loves us. Well, God may love us even if we don't always follow his instructions, but that doesn't mean he doesn't want us to follow them. Again, as a, as a parent, I had six kids, and, and I have grandchildren now, and they're learning. <laughs> kids mess up all the time. You love them fiercely, but they, but they don't do what you want them to do no matter how much you want them to do it. Even when they become adults, I mean, there's still struggles at times, is there not? You know, um, but they usually get much better, you know, under guidance and, uh, and whatnot. God wants us to obey. This, unfortunately, this, this idea that it doesn't matter ultimately. And the idea is I can do this and still be saved. Well, okay, but how about not do it? You know, um, it, it becomes a habit. It becomes a mindset, almost a knee-jerk reaction to dismiss anything that seems too hard or simply inconvenient for us, right? It's, after all, it's, it's our faith that, not, you know, not our actions we tell ourselves. But let us remember what James says, what Yaakov says. James 2, 14 through 18. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I thought that was very plain. Um, I won't belabor this point anymore, but God wants us to follow him. He wants us to obey. He wants us to be righteous. We will never attain his level of righteousness, but we should still try to please him. And Noah did that. So did many other righteous individuals. Even today, we can show integrity. We can treat each other with love and kindness. We can be righteous, understanding that our righteousness is not the level of God's. But we do know people that we think of as righteous. We can't ever really make this declaration for ourselves. We can't, I'm righteous. That never happens, right? It's really somebody else sees it in somebody else, you know, you, you see it in others. You don't see it in yourself. Let me share a news article. This one's a very personal one again for me. This is my father. Now, my father, as you might know, uh, and if you don't, <laughs> my father worked for newspaper, that was his chosen career, he was a journalist, um, worked for the Miami Herald and the, and the Fort Lauderdale News. And he was, through the last decade or so of his life, he worked on the editorial page, so, his opinion was often put out there, you know, in the, in the form of editorials. When he passed, however, he, he hung out with judges. He often was the one who uh, interviewed the politicians because he was a very fair man and, uh, and he liked people. My dad was kind of incredible. Um, but this, is, this was just the newspaper. Or, or this was the news, um, how they reported his death in his paper. Jim Gay, an assistant editorial page editor, whose integrity was legend at the Sun Sentinel and the old, old Fort Lauderdale News, died of cancer on Monday at Mo- Hollywood Memorial Center. He was 60. Jim was the most straight arrow person i met in my life, said Arthur G. Franza, a retired Broward circuit judge who knew him for 21 years. He was incredibly honest. He didn't know how to deviate. It wasn't in his character. If you had to mold someone good, you'd make a Jim gay, which I thought was nice. That was just the beginning of them talking about it. Now, on the editorial page, his boss, a man by the name of Kingsley Guy, this is how he starts the editorial that he did, honoring my father. From time to time, people enter your life who make a difference. They make it not in a dramatic way with drums beating and trumpets blaring, but in a soft and gentle way. They influence you not only by what they do, but who they are. Their goodness makes you a bit more good. Their honesty makes you a bit more honest. Their loving nature makes you a bit more loving. Such a person was assistant editorial page editor, Jim Gay, who died Monday at the age of 60 after a long illness. In a profession full of pessimistic cynicism, Jim brought hope and optimism to everything he did. He never swore, he never smoked, he never drank. He was the first person on the editorial page staff to arrive at work in the morning and often the last to leave at night. He was the hardest working person I ever met, yet work was only part of his life, not his reason for being. And so, I mean, I knew my dad's flaws. (laughs) He knew mine much more acutely. As I've told many people um, throughout my teenage years, I, I knew that, you know, my father would say, Kevin, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear, you know? Talking about the, when Saul, you know, uh, was met by Samuel. He says, you know, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. I, I heard that a lot, usually just before I got punished. But, um, <laughs> but my dad was a good man. Um, as a matter of fact, the worst things were, the better my dad was. It was a curiosity to me. If the world just completely imploded, my father, would be at his calmest. That was when he was at his best. But anyway, my dad is just one person. We all know people that we think of as, that's a good guy. And I love the way the Kingsley guy talked about the fact, their honesty makes you a little bit more honest. Their kindness makes you a little bit more kind. It does sort of wear off on you. The same is also true in the wickedness side, right? Yeah. So, so I think it's good. So I want to point that out because we can be righteous. We can be people of integrity. We know people of integrity today, and the world is still wicked. (laughs) Is it as wicked as the days of Noah? I don't know. God alone knows, Um, but we know that it will be as in the days of Noah before Messiah returns. Let's look at Luke 17, 26 through 27, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now I believe this verse is primarily telling us about how unaware most of the world will be of His return. They will be caught by surprise. However, Yeshua compares the last days to the days of Noah and Lot. Looked um, and at both times, the majority of the people were wicked, and God destroys them. Many people today do not follow God and have no desire to follow him. That's a reality. I believe most of us would assess the condition of the world as wicked. How wicked or when God comes is up to God. But we know what he tells us, right? The other thing that I want to point out from Noah is, as righteous as he was, he's, a lot of times they kind of poke at him. They kind of, there's a negative kind of a quality to him. They, they, have, a, they have some mild criticisms. And you say, well, how? I mean, he did all sorts of things good. So when I was reading it, what it, it, it agrees, everybody agrees he's righteous. But they also see some perceived flaws. And I'm not just talking about when he drank the wine. Obviously, drinking is not a sin, but drunkenness is always a sin. So, I mean, obviously what he did there was a problem. But I'm not talking about that one. One moment like that in your life is not, not what I'm talking about. Most of the criticism, and this is a weirdness to me, centers on the number of people saved, right? Let me read a few of the verses talking about who actually is saved. In Genesis 7, 11 through 15, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, and Noah's wife, and the wives of the sons were with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort, they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, all flesh in which there is breath of life. Now that's the part we usually focus on the story. That's a fun part. We like to speculate on it and we, they now have the ark over in the, you know, that they built that they'd like to think is to scale and it may be, I don't know, but it's, um, it's, um, it's neat. And it, it's, a, it's a, there's a lot that you can talk about from biology, you can talk, there's a lot of things that you can talk about, but, let's keep going down that verse in Genesis 7:23. He destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And this is where the criticism comes. Only eight people. That's all. Usually where you'll get it, um, you know, well, uh, you get two different things. People will ask, really, was everything, everybody else here redeemable? Yeah. Maybe. It does appear so from Scripture. So one of the midrashes used the phrase in Genesis 6-9, where it says, Noach was perfect in his generations, to suggest he would not have been considered righteous and say, Abraham's time. An interesting thought. Why pick Abraham's time? Well... Because Abraham's influence included not just his family, but went beyond uh, others as well. He also, we saw him plead for those in Sodom, right? Uh, We don't have similar verses for Noah. So that's kind of an interesting idea. Some of the midrashes further suggest that because Moses was raised in a godly home with, with righteous parents, as I said, Methuselah was his grandfather, Lamech, you know, Here he was, all these people of faith. He says, he may have been ill-prepared to talk with ungodly people about God. They point out that Abraham's father was an idolater. Maybe that's why he was more effective. Again, I thought that was kind of intriguing. (laughs) I would never thought about that before. Moses also had a righteous family, but he lived among um, unrighteous idolaters. And we can see Moses pleading with God, willing to argue even for the children of Israel. And he was commended for it, Right. There's no doubt that Israel's leaders have always been judged and still are judged today by the love they have for the people they lead. So that's why Moses is remembered so fondly because of his love for the, for the Jewish people and, and as well as all the other things that he did. But um, even when they committed sins, the desire to reach out to others, improve society, bring others to God, those are historically values of the Jewish people as they went from place to place. It's a good and noble and righteous society. We should reach out to others as well. There's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, we're commanded to do it. First, your family. Well, even if you want to criticize Noah for not saving more people, the only three sons we know about were in the ark with them. That's not bad. Not everybody can say that. It's also clear that We need to bring the good news up to others, but it's God who saves, not us. We let people know, but we don't control what they do with that. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. And I'd like this verse. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to you to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. So we have an obligation to warn our neighbor. We have an obligation to love our neighbor, but how our neighbor reacts is not up to us. That's how our neighbor, it's up to him, and it's how God decides. Um, We are called to share the good news. We are called to love others. We are not responsible for the results, positive or negative. We can't take any credit. If everybody, that's up to God. That's true even for our families. Now, while they are in our care, there's an expectation of some control, but once they are on their own, they can and do make their own choices. In his letter to Timothy, Rav Shul addresses some expectations. This is for leaders, but I'm gonna say it also applies to everybody in here, as well as to our family and things like that. And it talks about our families in these verses. This is his guidance to Timothy regarding bishops. And there's very similar verses for deacons. He says in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, A bishop, an overseer, an elder, must then be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So there is an expectation, even within scripture, recognizing our weakness, that we have some influence, some control over our circumstances, the people around us, and that we would, while they're in our house, you know, obviously, we, we, uh, we do have to control and we have to discipline and things like that. So we, we, we're called to, to do what God asks us to do. Now, others, the community. We do have a responsibility to our community, to our neighbors. The first verse that comes to mind is the one that we mention every week here at RPS, in Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Among believers, it's also supposed to be our defining characteristic. Let's look at John 13:35. By this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. It's not our dress. It's not the things we follow. It's not the day we worship. If we have love one to another that's the defining characteristic. It also, interestingly, was the last instruction Yeshua left with his disciples. If we go to Acts 1, verses 8 through 9, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're actually the whole great commission, right? We're, we're told that we have to go out and talk. We have to Tell them about Yeshua. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So it was literally the last thing he said before taken up into, into heaven. So, what's the conclusion? John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. We love God. How do we love God? We follow what he says, we're righteous. So being, being righteous equates to loving God. In Leviticus 19.18, we just read, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We're also supposed to love our neighbor. That's the two things we're supposed to do. And tying those together, I go to some words of Messiah Yeshua. In Matthew 22:35 through 40, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Yeshua said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We mention that, but this is how. God tells us to love but just like your children, we don't know how to do it, right? So he gives us a lot of other instruction, just like you do with your kids. Don't hit your brother. You got to love him. You didn't know that at first. You got to share your toys. That's what God's doing with us. Here's how. And, and we can't just say we love God the way we want to love him. He has a way that we, you know, we can't just do what we want to do. So what we're left with is let's love God and love our neighbors. Let's be righteous and let's, let's share the good news with the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are grateful to you. We're grateful to you for your spirit. We're grateful to you to have a group of believers. We're thankful to live in a a place and a time when we can can express our beliefs and share them with others, Lord, and, and that we are blessed all the time by you, Lord, and we are grateful for those blessings. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us and that you would help us to learn and grow and to be better followers of you, better children, that we would improve. And we love you, Lord. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pina Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, North of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpina.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H.org. You can also reach us by phone at 405 or email us at info at roshpinah.org Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.